Jewish Latin Princess, episode 106, Lindsay Pollock, millennial expert and author of The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess podcast by Yael. Every week, get your dose of inspiration from the world's most uniquely talented Jewish women and from Yael herself. Seeking profound and practical ways to live a joyful, richer Jewish life? Welcome to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. And now, Jewish lifestyle expert and bilingual blogger at jewishlatinprincess.com, your host, Yael. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess. I'm your host, Yael Trush. Welcome back, everyone. And if you're new to the show, well, welcome. I know that after my presentations in the National Jewish Retreat, um, especially my presentation on podcasting, which you may have heard on episode 105 of this podcast, I've gained a few new listeners. So welcome to the show. I'm very happy to have you here joining us. My guest today is Lindsay Pollock. Lindsay Pollock is the leading expert on the millennial generation and today's multi-generational workplace. Lindsay is a New York Times bestselling author, and she actually just published her newest book, The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace. Lindsay has spoken at Facebook, LinkedIn, Yale, Harvard, Wharton, Stanford. She's been on the Today Show, the New York Times, CNN, NPR, and now I'm proud to say Jewish Latin princess. Lindsay's often called a translator. She advises organizations and individuals on how to thrive in today's multi-generational workplace. We talk about what that looks like today, how the multi-generational workplace is unique, something unprecedented, and what are some of the keys to multi-generational success in the workplace, the roles of fundamentals and what does change really look like when embraced properly? What can we learn from millennials as well as what they can be doing better? Lindsay says the onus is not all on the older generation. We all have a responsibility to manage relationships with our co-workers from different generations and we can be doing better. So how do we do that in the best way possible? Lindsay's here to tell us. And what do you know? A lot of it goes back to a fundamental Jewish idea. So let's hear her. Here we go, ladies. Here's Lindsay Pollock. Lindsay Pollock, welcome to Jewish Latin Princess and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so great to connect. The new book is The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace. Such an interesting topic and you are the leading authority on millennials and uh, you're also a New York Times bestselling author. You're a consultant to multinationals and large companies. You're often called a translator, which I guess is a way of, I guess, a mediator helping Helping young professionals succeed in the workplace and helping organizations recruit and 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 retain, frankly, um, the the younger generation. So I'm super curious about this fascinating work that you do. But before we tackle your work per se and the new book, I'm I'm very curious, um, and I'm sure for our listeners it would be very valuable if we could take a few steps back. And I want to ask you, how did you even arrive at this place? I mean, it's not like we wake up one day and we say, "Well, I want one day to advise people on how to thrive in the workplace." 
Right. right? <laughs> right? So was there an experience early on in your in the work when you enter the workforce that kind of set this off this path set you off on this path of research and expertise? It's such a great question. And I, I get asked that a lot. How does someone become a generational work expert? <laughs> a strange area. Um, so there are a couple of things. Um, both of my parents were teachers, but they also both started businesses. So uh-huh. my dad was an English teacher who eventually started a, an SAT test prep business. My mom was an art teacher who eventually started co- doing her own artwork and then coaching other artists. So I think that was that combination of teaching and entrepreneurship was probably that. yeah a little bit in my DNA. My mom used to listen to you know business self-help tapes in the car driving us around to Hebrew school and after school activities and, right. and all that stuff. So it had to sink in. Um, I was an RA, a resident advisor, my senior year in college. And that was just, I really felt in that role as a senior in college that I kind of came into my own and found something I love to do, advising young people, kind of using my own experience to mm-hmm. help others and sort of say, I made that mistake, don't do it, the mentoring, the coaching. But I don't think I really knew that that could be a career. So I was really stumped as to what to do with my career. But again, I was very interested in teaching and entrepreneurship, which I thought would lead to higher education or or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting a, a rotary scholarship, like local rotary clubs to Australia. Mm-hmm. And when I was in Australia, one of the requirements of the scholarship was that you had to go to grad school. So I got a master's degree and I loved being a student, but you also had to give speeches to these rotary clubs that had sponsored the scholarship. And I came back from the scholarship two years later and they had an exit interview and they said, you know, Lindsay, did you do your required speeches? And I said, oh, I, I, I wasn't aware that there was a number, how many were required? <laughs> and they said four. And I said, oh, I did 39. Oh, I think I really like speaking to audiences. <laughs> and of course, you know, like any epiphany, I did nothing about it. I got a job in the dot-com world um, at a website called workingwoman.com, which was a great job, sort of pulled all my interests together. This was around the year 2000. And long story short, it went bankrupt and I started my own business. And I thought I would be a writer on Uh career issues, you know, and, and really focusing on the entry level. But what I found was my real passion, as much as I love writing, my real passion was the speaking. Mm. And I sort of did the speaking to support the writing in books, but that ended up now almost 20 years later becoming my business. So I think it's a combination of really deeply interested in career and workplace issues, interest in entrepreneurship, but also I think being a teacher and really liking to help people learn and understand um, things that can make a difference in their lives. So that's that's sort of my, my origin story. So interesting, because something that you mentioned before, like, you had this realization, but you didn't, it didn't really sink in. Like, sometimes we don't think that these things that come naturally to us are can actually become our career. Like, well, I can't make money at that. It comes so easily to me, right? right? <laughs> so true. So true. Um, especially maybe it's true for our generation. <laughs> Talking about generations. I don't think millennials think that way, by the way, they're a little bit more out of the box creative. We're like, we had like this box we needed to fit in. <laughs> That's exactly know. right. right? You know, I assumed that I needed to find a job. Right. And I remember I went to a career coach very early on. Um, and she said, what's the best job you ever had? Or, you know, your favorite hobby. And I said, being an RA. And she said, why don't you figure out a way to, you know, start a business doing that? And I remember saying, well, there are no jobs for that, you know, Mm -hmm. unless you want to 
kind of be a, I don't know, a resident and, you know, I don't know, run that for a, a college. And she said, well, why don't you invent it? And I remember thinking, no, you can't do that. How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what started to happen. And just to finish the story, I'm glad that you used the word translator when you were introducing me. I really thought that my business would be advising young people. So my first book was called Getting from College to Career. Mm-hmm. And it really was that RA perspective. I'm going to help young people figure out their careers, find their passion. And I did that for a good 10 years. I really focused on the college campus market, you know, entry level uh, orientation programs. Mm-hmm. And then about 2008, the word millennial started to appear in the media. Buzzword. <laughs> yeah. And companies started to call me and said, you know, we hear that you teach millennials how to succeed in their careers. Could you teach us how to manage them? And mm-hmm. that's where I thought it was kind of this, this light bulb moment of, oh, the business is not just helping the young people to advance. It's helping everybody else pull them forward. And I'm a Gen Xer. I'm, I'm um, 45 years old. And And I was really well positioned almost by accident to kind of, and actually it's kind of like being an RA, right? You you hang out with the kids, but you also support the administration. You're in that translator role. I think that's really what I've become in my business. And I think for Gen Xers like us, we're really well positioned between kind of the baby boomers and the millennials. And we have this unique outsider perspective. So interesting. So let's talk about this concept of the remix. Now that we've mentioned the millennials and the Gen Xers, this is a very important book. I, I'm, I'm not sure if we ever saw such a mix of generations, right, Lindsay, in the workplace. This is like a new phenomenon in many regards. What is, what is, what is unique about what we're seeing today in terms of the generation mix? You're exactly right. And it's such an important point. We've always had multiple generations. What's different about today is that we have more distinct generations than ever before. So mm-hmm. when I entered the workforce in the 90s, we had three generations, the traditionalist or World War II generation born before 1945. You had the baby boomers born 46 to 60. You had Xers born 65 to 1980. So it was kind of like people beginning, middle and end of their careers. And that was really comfortable and and very common. What has happened is now the millennials born 1981 to 1996 have come in. And now Gen Z were born 1997 and later. So now we have five generations. And what's interesting about that is not that young people are coming in because that's always been the case. The change is that the baby boomers and the traditionalists are working into their 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. sometimes 90s. So the entire pool of the workforce has expanded on in both directions early and late career so that we now have five distinct generations. So what are the keys? I'm sure you've identified some things that are important, some keys to to success in this multi-generational workplace, given that we have such a clash of, at the end of the day, this is a conversation about culture, right? Because having grown up in a certain generation, it is it's 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 a cultural difference that we have with somebody else who's 20 years younger than us. That's just the bottom line, right? So 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 what what can we be doing better? What are the keys to success? That's exactly right. It's an issue of diversity. And, mm-hmm. and we are all human beings. And we are more alike than we are different. And I'm certainly not here to say that just because you are born a certain year that we know that you're going to act exactly one way. It's just mm-hmm. one additional element of identity. It's another clue you can use as to why people might be behaving a certain way, just like you can with gender or with birth order or with region of the country with personality type. It's another factor. So the, the first key, I 
I think, number one, is to realize that we are more alike than different, which means to assume the best intentions, right? Mm -hmm. So if I have a clash with you because you're wearing your headphones at work and I don't like that, Mm -hmm. if I sort of look at it and say, wow, you know, Yael is just trying to make me mad. I don't really think that most people come into the work (laughs) to deliberately make people mad. I have to look beneath that and say, if she had the best intentions, why might she be wearing her headphones? And that sort of gives you empathy and a dialogue. And then I might say, Yael, you know, I really want to talk to you during the workday, but you're wearing headphones. And you say, oh my gosh, I was wearing the headphones because I wanted to be more efficient in my work. You know, I was trying to do the right thing. Maybe I can wear them just in the mornings, or maybe I could just put one earbud in my ear. Maybe we can kind of talk about it. So number one is to assume that whatever quality or characteristic or action someone is taking if they have the best intentions behind it and you have the best intentions for why you have a problem with it, Mm -hmm. you can have a better dialogue. Number two is that nobody is right or wrong. We just have different perspectives. And that's where the title remix comes in. Everybody knows what a remix song is. A remix song is when you take a classic song and you don't say that classic is wrong or bad or should be retired. You say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we mixed in new elements and made something different? Mm-hmm. And, and it then, tends to be the best song, the remix. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, I interviewed a bunch of DJs because I didn't want to title my book remix and not you know, get some expert perspective on it. <laughs> that was smart. <laughs> and DJ said to me exactly what you said, like remixes are so popular. Right. And the reason they're popular is that they have broad appeal because older people know the original and they like it and have an affinity for it and are interested to hear the remix. Young people like the remix and then they learn about the older song. A, a DJ told me that a little trick of DJing at a party, a wedding, a bar mitzvah and so on is that if the dance floor is empty, you play a remix because so the older nice. people want to dance and the younger people want to dance. Yeah. Yeah, so it's totally inclusive. <laughs> exactly. So if you bring that to the workplace and you don't say, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, who wins? Should the millennial way get their mm-hmm. way or should the baby boomers? That's not the right question. The question is, what are the best things that baby boomers did, like mentoring, like face-to-face networking, you know, handwritten thank you notes? And then what are the best things we have today? Texting is incredibly efficient when you use it properly. We shouldn't not use it just because millennials like it. So mm-hmm. how do you pick the best of all eras to be successful in your work. So I think those are the two the two keys for any business, any job, any generation. I love this idea. And it, there, there must be some examples, like you mentioned the idea of the thank you notes, right? There, there must be some fundamentals that we could say, you know, we're, and we're not suggesting that we, you know, disregard these or, you know, throw them down on the by the wayside, right? There are certain things that need to stick. We just have to find ways that, you know, the newer way of the doing things add color to, you know, the fundamentals. Does that make sense? That's exactly right. So that's what I call in the book remixes. So mm-hmm. an example is mentoring. Mentoring is great that a older, more experienced professional gives guidance and coaching to a younger person. There's nothing wrong with that. But in the multi-generational workplace, it's also really valuable for the young person to share ideas and coaching and guidance and perspective with the older person. So they call that reverse mentoring or co-mentoring. It doesn't mean that the quote, old fashioned mentoring goes away. It means that you add to it to help people in a multi-generational workplace. Um, Think of something like managing people. It's a classic practice to have one-on-one meetings or check-ins with the people that you manage. Well, 
people are working remotely these days, everybody's on a flexible schedule, it gets very complicated. Well, there's absolutely no reason that you can't do your one on one by Skype or by text message or by FaceTime, Hmm. you can use new technologies to update the classics. So it's about finding those additions or ways to kind of expand your thinking as opposed to saying, well, if we can't meet in person, this just doesn't work anymore. There's always a way to figure out how to modernize some of the practices that are really classic. The other thing is there are some practices that really should go away, right? That are no longer relevant. And there are also some things that are happening today that, you know, maybe won't stick around for a while. So it doesn't mean that every solution from the past is right. And every solution from the present is right. It's about finding what works for your organization and your team. You know, Lindsay, just hearing you speak, first of all, you mentioned something so interesting, though, your first key point was about the empathy and about making assumptions and assuming that the other person is coming from from a good place. They're not doing anything maliciously, right? Um, and you also give me the sense that you have a very positive take on on, on things, on, on your work, on presenting these ideas to companies and on your teaching. And as I was hearing you talking, um, I couldn't help but think of there's a Jewish idea of um, um, being dan le which means giving another person the benefit of the doubt, which is so, so important. Um, and it's exactly what you mentioned. It's the world is so much better when we can actually um, not make those assumptions, but say one minute, this might, this is probably not personal. Let's have a conversation and find out what is the other side. And I think that's a lot of what you help companies do ask those questions that are not being asked. And meanwhile, we're just operating on assumptions, right? I think that's so right. And such an important I mean, for personal life as well, as professional, I just don't think that people walk into the office or their work environment in the morning thinking about how they could be difficult. I really think people want to do the right thing. And I think where you see this a lot is directly in the manager employee relationship. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot about the importance of being more transparent, more communicative, which is those one on one conversations. And whether you're the same generation or a different generation, we need to listen to each other more. One of the strategies in the book is to ask more questions, right? To be a better listener. My grandfather used to say, there's a reason you have two ears and one mouth, use them accordingly. (laughs) Twice as much as you talk. And a lot of HR experts I talked to, again, whether it's generational or not, said the most important factor in success of managing another person is to get to know each other, right? To break Mm -hmm. bread together, to actually care about the people that you work with. And I think that that's a timeless concept. It is a timeless concept. However, I think it's resurfaced with this mm-hmm. wonderful new generation. There's a lot of millennial shaming. We'll talk about that um, later. But but I, I think when I was younger, and tell me if that was true for you, when I was in corporate America out of college and during grad school, I mean, we didn't think of having and we wanted it. Let me let me be clear. We wanted to have personal relationships with our peers, our boss, our, our, you know, our superiors, there was just it was just not something we also wanted meaning we wanted, you know, we wanted to make a difference. We just didn't talk about it. And we just didn't dare ask, you know, it was like chutzpah. It's like you take what you're given, you do it and you go home. (laughs) That's exactly right. I couldn't agree with you more. One of the things that I, I find myself saying a lot is, you know, people accuse millennials of wanting purpose, wanting their work to feel important, wanting more feedback, wanting to advance more quickly, wanting work life integration. And what I like to say is, you know, 
we all want those things. Yes. We just never expected to get them. So what millennials are doing is they're growing up in a time when through social media and, you know, sites like ratemyprofessor.com and Yelp and Glassdoor, <laughs> they actually have a forum to ask for the things they want. And so as an employer, if you listen to the desires of millennials, you're really listening to desires of everybody. everybody. You just didn't think we were allowed to ask for them. Right. I totally agree with you. Right. And the truth is also they're creating a very positive change in some regard because they're setting, we're learning from them that, you know, even though that was in our experience earlier on in our career, it's just giving us, I don't know if the word is permission, but it's definitely, um, you know, allowing for the workplace to have that, um, that environment, that culture um, for everybody involved. That's exactly right. And so I think some of the millennial shaming or criticism is actually a little envy on the yeah. part of other generations who say, I would have loved to have those things. I can't believe you're asking for those things. Wow, I wish I could have done that too. And I, I think really when you, when you get down to it, I often ask people to describe the best boss they ever had. And usually, no matter what generation you are, it's probably a boss who cared about you. It's mm. probably a boss who gave you feedback, who understood you as an individual. The best bosses have always done this naturally. I just think now millennials are not willing to work for bosses who don't treat them as human beings. Very, very interesting. It's really very interesting. Do you think this millennial shaming is this obsession with millennials is typical to the US? Or is this something going on worldwide? It's a really funny question. So um, for a long time, the perception whether it was reality or not was that this was very American. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember and, and I think a lot of it, I think every generation has been shamed, you know, it's sort of classic to say when I was your age, you know, I was so much smarter and I worked so much harder. Uh -huh. But now we have the internet and social media. So any shaming, you know, we were Gen Xers were called slackers, baby boomers were called hippies, everyone's been through it. I we didn't know have... we were called slackers, by the oh, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh, the the Ethan Hawke, uh, reality bites era drinking coffee in Seattle wearing flannel. Yeah, we were, <laughs> we were always called the slackers in the 90s. Um, so that's always happened. But I just think the the degree to which it happens today is on such a greater scale because of social media and the internet. And so what that means is when they're millennial shaming memes and jokes on Facebook and Twitter and any social media, that naturally goes global. And really, what's interesting about this generation is terms like Gen X. I mean, would you have heard that in Israel or in France or in Bangladesh? You know, not so much. Some of the phrases were. But this term millennial or Generation Y has really gone global to mm -hmm. name this generational cohort because of Facebook right? Because this group is more connected through social media. And so about 10 years ago, I went to London, and they said, Oh, this is so American, this doesn't affect us, us. This isn't a Western European issue. We don't use that word. We don't shame our young people. And in the past couple years, I've been getting a lot more calls from Western Europe saying, um, can you come talk to us? We're having some trouble with our millennials. So I think it might have come a little later. It also depends on the environment. So in South America, in the Middle East, uh, certainly in China and India, they're a much more youth driven culture in terms of just sheer demographics of the population. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different conversation. Whereas in countries like the US and in Western Europe, which are more aging populations, I think you're seeing a little bit more pushback on the younger generations, um, just sheerly because of the demographic changes in those countries. So 
I think a lot has to do with the individual demographics. But what used to be considered only an American issue is definitely happening in other countries, usually around the technology. It's usually around the digital divide of whether you are, quote, addicted to your cell phone, whether you spend too much time on social media, that tends to be the global conversation about young people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now that we're talking about millennials, are there things that millennials, I guess this is yeah, are there things that they could be doing better? I mean, you know, like those things that the typical stereotypical, we talked about the earbuds, right? We talked, there's these typical examples that you hear from people from our generation and the baby boomers. Well, these kids, they show up at 10 in the office, right? Um, and again, maybe it's just like you said before, it's conversations, it's asking questions. Um, but on the younger generation side, how could they approach the older generation and benefit from the fact that the older gener generation does have a wealth of wisdom and experience that they need to tap into? And not all is resentment. And perhaps, you know, how, how can, you know, how can we, um, how can they make, how can the bridge be made, but from the perspective of the younger people? It's a great question. And I think it is everybody's responsibility. I don't want to project the message that it's the older generation's job to understand young people. I okay. think we all have to understand each other. So one of my very small suggestions always is next time you go to a community event, next time you go to a party, next time you go to a volunteer event, next time you take a training course, deliberately sit next to someone of a different generation. Huh. We tend to find the person most similar to us, but why not try to find the person most different to you, right? So deliberately put yourself in situations in places you would normally go. I don't think you have to go to an old age home if you're 15 and, and sort of be deliberate. But let's say you're going to synagogue. Let's say you're going to a sporting event. Let's say you're volunteering. Don't go to the person most similar, go to the person most different. So number one is just a genuine curiosity for people of other generations. I think that's really important. I was just reading a story about someone who said dogs are really good for this if you're a dog owner, because when you go to the dog run or the dog park, mm -hmm. right, you have something in common, which is your pets and you can talk to people who are different. So that's right. number one. Um, number two, I think, is for young people, there's such a need for learning and development. If you look at all the studies of what young people most want from their careers, they want to grow and learn as quickly as possible. Times are changing. A lot of jobs are being automated. Well, my message to younger people is one of the quickest ways to advance your skills is to apprentice yourself to somebody older. So, mm -hmm. you know, I like offices where people sit mixed by generation so you can overhear a more experienced colleague talk on the phone. Oh, um, that's so interesting. Your, right? Ask your boss if you can come to a meeting and watch how they engage in a meeting. Go to a business lunch with someone of another generation. So really try to not just learn by books and podcasts. And podcasts, of course, are very important. Yeah, <laughs> very extremely important to learning. <laughs> But, you know, put yourself in positions and situations where you are learning from other people as well. And the third piece, and this is something I've been talking about for 20 years, just with young people in general, is I think that a young person's perception coming into the workplace, and this is timeless, is that it's your boss's job to manage you, right? It's their responsibility. Mm -hmm. I think there's really a mind shift that is very beneficial to any young person or anyone with a boss which is that the, the relationship you have with your manager is half your responsibility as well. So don't just sit and wait for them to manage you. Learn your boss's style. Ask them questions about you know, what their job entails. Align yourself to their goals. I think really kind of 
taking responsibility for your role in the manager employee relationship is really critical and especially critical if that person is of a different generation. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when you mentioned about um, going to client meetings or lunches with client and things like that, a lot of people, a lot of times it's just about making the ask, you know, just sometimes you just have to be as a younger employee, sometimes you just have to ask your manager. It could be that because they're from a different generation, they don't even know to invite you because that's not the way it's been typically done. And you might be surprised, you might actually get to go. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know, I always think of my very, very first boss in college, I had a a summer internship at a nonprofit. And she said they couldn't pay me. Mm -hmm. But she said, come sit in my office and listen to me make fundraising phone calls. And I just sat there and listened call after call after call. And you can't really read a book on how to ask for money, right? I mean, it's a very difficult thing to do. But I got to hear her handling questions and handling people who said no and negotiating and thanking people. And all of that nuance is so valuable. And one of the the dangers, I think, or one of the ways that I, I think young people have to make up for it is so much happens over email now that we don't see how people converse and communicate. Mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of create ways, maybe ask if you can be CC'd on the emails of your boss to see how they handle things. But that apprenticeship learning, I think is so classic. The modern twist, the remix is that sometimes that has to happen virtually as opposed to in person now. Right, right. It's almost like the having the um, the EQ when it mm-hmm. comes to working with others is still super relevant. It's just we're going to develop it maybe in different ways. That's exactly right. One of the things I've been hearing a lot is there's IQ, right, your intelligence, mm-hmm. then there's your EQ, your emotional intelligence. Well, now there's DQ, which oh, is your what's that? digital digital intelligence. Huh. Young people have a really high DQ, correct? but often they don't have the EQ. And to survive right. today, and sometimes older people have the good EQ, but not as strong DQ, right. you need all of it, right? You definitely so, do. Those three legs of the stool, the intelligence, the emotional intelligence, and the digital intelligence in 2019, 2020, that's the combination that's important. And young people sometimes need to amp up the EQ. Mm-hmm. You know, it, this all begs the question that people might think, you know, I'm going to invest so much in making all this effort to have this um awareness and in the way I manage people and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, in three years are going to leave me, right? It's not, mm. th- this is, this is the way now, I guess the trend, it's not like in the olden days where you stuck with a job 10, 20, 30 years. Um, what, what do we say to that cynic, you know, to that, I guess it's a cynical way of looking at it, but there is some validity to it, I guess. It's really challenging, you know, sometimes, and I hate to say this, but sometimes you can do everything right and young people are going to leave anyway, Mm -hmm. right? So I think you have to think about the culture of your organization, which you brought up you know, a little bit earlier, which is, do you want to be a culture where you support people and train people, you know, and develop people? Or do you want to be a culture that doesn't do that? And I don't think you can say, well, we're only going to support you and train you if you stay, right? <laughs> That's sort of a, a little bit threatening. So I think of a, you know, there's an accounting firm that um, has a lot of turnover, but one of their methods is if you decide that that accounting firm is not the right fit for you, They have a 24-7 career coaching hotline, and they will help coach you to write your resume and get a job someplace else. No way. That's so cool. Yeah. If you take the the big picture view, 
if you're miserable in your job and it's not a good fit, you could sort of leave and be angry mm-hmm. and quit and hate them for the rest of your career, which could be 50 years. Yeah. Or if they help you, you're probably going to say great things about that company for decades. Yeah. You're probably going to send them employees and business and clients. You might become a client someday. You might even boomerang back to the company. And a really big trend of a lot of employers of millennials is that young people leave because they're being bombarded on LinkedIn with other opportunities. They feel like they're too young to commit. They you know, think the grass is green. Who knows? A million different right. reasons. And they come back and they say, wow, I really made a mistake in leaving. I, I didn't know. You know, I'm early in my career. I didn't realize how great this company was. And I have certain leaders say, no, you can't come back. You know, you're dead to us. The other strategy is I've had so many leaders say when people boomerang back, they are the most dedicated employees, Mm -hmm. the most hardworking employees, because they realize how great a place this was for their development. So I think you have to really and it's hard, right? Nobody wants anyone to quit. It's so frustrating. But I think you have to really think about the big picture, which is what kind of culture do you want? And if you play the long game, do you want to be known as a generator and trainer of talent? Or do you want to be known as a place that only supports that for certain people? I I think it's a really big question. But you're right, a lot of people worry about that. And I understand that fear. You know, it it almost makes me it, it not almost it makes me excited for the, <laughs> my children and the younger people. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good changes that are happening. And that could potentially happen if people, you know, read your books and go to your keynotes and all that, because this is this is super relevant. And um, it's exciting. I, I just, I just don't remember being in corporate America and being excited about it. But I, <laughs> it feels like the trend is is very positive. I appreciate that. And, and I'll tell you, you know, we could have a very different conversation. I choose to be positive and write about what's happening that's good. And, and the reason I do that is we don't have a choice. I mean, you and I are both mothers. The yes. next generation is coming, whether we like it or not, whether we adapt to them or not. So do you want to be an organization or an individual who clings to the past and won't change? Or are you somebody who says, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna make this work. You know, you can't like throw the millennials overboard and, and say, well, well, we'll just wait for the next generation. This is what <laughs> we've got, right? So you have to sort of face reality. And I think the companies that are facing reality and adapting, but staying true to what they know has worked from the past. And again, that's why I use the remix metaphor. It's not about changing everything. It's about, you know, choosing what from the past makes sense and should be kept and adapted and what maybe don't we need anymore. So I'm very deliberately positive, but it's a choice, right? There are definitely some negatives and some challenges. But if you choose to be positive, I think you're more likely to be successful. Hmm. On that note, Lindsay, are you are you a positive person in general? Would you say that's um, your, you know, would you describe yourself as that? I think I'm a positive person, but I'm also a worrier. So oh, okay. <laughs> I definitely have, uh, have worries about things. You know, Th- that I sounds pretty sure. Jewish to me. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm positive about humanity and the world, and I try to assume the best intentions mm-hmm. with people. And I think I have you know, more of an optimistic outlook, but I, I definitely have a, an anxiety side as well. It's interesting. Do you think that positivity um, came from your upbringing? Do you, did you see that in your, fam- in your parents, in your grandparents? Is that something? that came from family? Probably had the the natural Jewish cynicism, but Uh I think there's always an optimism about education and success, right? Work hard 
hard, find your passion, um, be yourself, you know, grow into who you are. I think there was a, a lot of support, um, which I would definitely perceive as positive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Are you second, third generation America? Talk to me a little bit about the generations in your family. Sure. I don't know the exact number, but I'm going to say my grandparents, all four of my grandparents were born in the United States. Uh-huh. So the generation so my great grandparents were from Russia and Poland mm. and Austria. So we go back pretty far, New York Jews for at least three generations. Right, right. So people <laughs> came Jewish before the Second World War, basically. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So my grandfather's fought in the war uh, from the US. Wow, wow, interesting. Lindsay, talking about family a little bit, you're a mother and you're a wife. Um, are there any perhaps Jewish values or traditions that you, you know, that you make make a point to transmit to your family to observe or that you hold dear, whether because you learned them from your parents home or because you just later on in life as you build your own home, you adopted them? Is there anything that stands out that's really important to you? I was thinking about this before we spoke, I'm I'm relatively secular. Mm -hmm. However, to me, you know, and I was bat mitzvahed. Um, to me, though, Judaism is, um, in a lot of ways, seems to manifest by not being in the mainstream. And what I mean by that is, I think it's tremendously difficult to be American and not celebrate Christmas. And I don't want to sort of make it all about one day, but I think a lot of people probably um, relate to that. And my daughter's uh, now eight years old. And there's always a time where your child comes to you, or maybe I'm sure a lot of other people have this experience where they sure. say, why don't we get to celebrate Christmas, right? right? I mean, it's a big deal in the United States and in so many other countries. And I remember having that conversation with my parents. Really? You know, why don't we get that? You know, why are we going to the Chinese restaurant and, you know, <laughs> all that stuff <laughs> on, on Christmas? And so to me, and as secular as we might be, I don't have a tree. We don't celebrate Christmas, et cetera. We certainly celebrate Hanukkah. Um, and, and to me, it's that, you know, we are different. We have different beliefs. Um, that's not part of our culture. That's not part of ex- our experience. And and I kind of remember being out at a restaurant and the, the waiter, someone would say, Merry Christmas, kids. And I remember that sort of decision you have to make as a very young child. Do you say thank you, Merry Christmas, and sort of ignore it? Or do you say, no, actually, I don't celebrate Christmas? And mm-hmm. do you identify yourself as somebody different? And I think that as a Jew, we had to make that decision quite young. And, and tell me if this is resonating, That's but true. you had to sort of decide, do I declare that I'm different? You know, at a very young age, I, I have such a memory of being in first grade. And it was one of those years where Hanukkah was very early in December. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up in an area without a lot of Jewish families. Um, and I remember we had to make these little handprints for holiday gifts for our parents. And they said, okay, Jewish kids, you're going to do your handprints today because Hanukkah's early. Everybody else will do them next week. <laughs> And, you know, those little experiences of being identified as different for your religion really stood out to me. And I'm sort of watching that. And we live in New York City, so certainly we have a lot of Jewish friends right. uh, where we grow up. But I, I think as an entrepreneur, as a woman entrepreneur, as a working mother, I think there's something in me that at a very early age became comfortable or at least had to get used to saying I am different. Um, and I, I that that really stands out to me. Does that resonate it's, or have other people? Totally, talk totally. And I think something that what you're saying also when you mention about the, making that conscious decision of you know to say you know I I am different, and you becoming comfortable with that at an early age, there must have been something um, from home that 
made it okay at the end of the day, even though you're describing, you know, your parents' home as pretty secular, because another, other children and other people that I've had on the show, and certainly, you know, friends of mine, you know, make the experience, have the, an opposite experience where, you know, I don't want to be seen as different, period. Right. Like, really, that's the last thing I and, and it marked them in that way, those childhood experiences marked them in that way. And I believe and this could be just, you know, kind of what I've put two and two together might be totally off. But I think perhaps whatever happens at home for that individual kind of help them make that decision one way or the other, you know, am I okay with the difference? Or am I just going to reject it? And it's a really, I think as a Jew, and I'm sure, I mean, there's so many elements of person of color or sexuality or an immigrant where you're faced with that sort of difference quite young. You Um, are. And that's really, I mean, look at my memory. I'm sitting here on a podcast. I'm 45 years old and I'm talking about being six and having to do a handprint a week early. That really was noticeable to me. Um, And I think, right, you have a choice. Am I going to pass as the same as everybody else, or am I going to identify as different? And and that feels very powerful to me. Yeah. What about now that you see this, that you have a daughter and you're parenting? I mean, how does that com- this conversation translate into what you your daughter potentially could be having the same type of, you know, mental, this, these thoughts processes? Um, are you are you doing something intentional, perhaps to help her make those decisions along the way? You know, we're at, the way I think about it is we live in this time, I mean, you know, it's oversaid, but there's so much attention to difference right now, right? Yes, and red and blue true. states and diversity, you know, and it's so divisive. And I think when we talk about issues around, and, and you know, my daughter's eight, she hears about the news, she, you know, she hears some things now that that are actually, it's quite new to our family to be at this stage where she's hearing some of the news. Uh, um, and when we talk about racism, when we talk about what's happening, um, you know, with detained immigrants and their children, when she hears little snippets, I think in some ways, her element of difference, her Judaism is a way to enter that conversation. And you say, you know how some people celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Hanukkah, some people have different beliefs, some people, you know, believe this or that. And I think in a way, it's it's been a an interesting or helpful entry point to some really challenging conversations. Wow. Yeah, so true. So, so true. So, Lindsay, the remix, the remix seems to be, you know, taking the world by storm. The book is doing very <laughs> well, um, very well received. You. You've built a career as an author, as a coach, a very successful keynote speaker. And of course, you're a wife and a mother. What, what's next for Lindsay Pollock? Well, thank you for the questions. Um, I will be really transparent that one of the biggest challenges of my career is the amount that I travel um, mm. as an author and a speaker. We started the call very briefly by talking about book tours and traveling, and that's really challenging. Um, so my goal for 2020, I'm trying to be accountable, so I'm putting it out there in public on your, your podcast, very good. <laughs> is um, to develop, um, I'm actually working on a, a question and answer podcast, so sort of like a Dear Lindsay style podcast nice. to help answer People's workplace questions. You're one of my inspirations, Yael. Um, and I'm also launching some online courses for 2020 to help put my work out there in more of a virtual way. Right. Trying to remix my own business. Certainly traveling um, uh, a bit, not completely staying grounded, but to try to do more on the web and a little bit less that requires an airplane. So I what's next it. for me is that transition. Yeah, thank I you. love it. Building those other revenue streams because it's it's hard, especially when we're raising kids. You know, it's it's tough. I know. I also travel a lot for speaking, and it could yeah. it's really difficult. 
Yeah. And, you know, some days I like it. I'm not going to lie. There's yeah. a niceness to a hotel room every once in a while and, <laughs> and a full night's sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my goal is to really be home a little bit more in New York City um, and certainly to um, continue to spread the message. And, and I'm hoping I can reach more people if I do that through online courses. Very nice. Well, Lindsay, um, we're very short on time, but I want to wrap it up with what I do with all of my guests, which is called JLP fill in the blanks. I'm going to give you a few open ended sentences and you just finish them with the first thing that comes to mind. No right or wrong answers here. Okay, great. And some of them can get a little woo woo, a little spiritual, just have <laughs> just have fun with it. Okay. Okay. I'm Lindsay Pollock. And I feel most spiritual when well, I just started meditating. So I would say any time where I'm alone, quieting my thoughts. Mm, nice. That's kind of hard to do in New York City, Lindsay. <laughs> it is very hard to do. I use an app to tune out the noise and uh, keep myself calm. So I yeah, I use a nature app to pretend I'm in nature when I'm in the city. <laughs> oh my gosh, you just reminded me you're an author. I also write. Um, I do you use like there's something called noisily? Have you heard of that? That oh, like, oh my gosh, Lindsay, you put it you it's noisily.com. I'll send you the link. And basically, you get this background music. And you can choose you have rain and you have thunder and you have coffee shop and whatever and you choose it. And I just find so relaxing to write my articles for the newspaper like with this background and you could choose like you know the degrees how much rain how much wind it's cool <laughs> i think coffee shop is hilarious because most people are probably know. in a coffee shop while they're doing it yeah exactly exactly oh, i love that i love the rain that's what i use when i meditate i know i love it okay my favorite mitzvah or one that i connect with the most is oh can you give me some choices oh plenty let's see you, you mentioned hanukkah candles before there's charity tzedakah there's lighting shabbos candles there's i don't know uh um, i'm gonna say uh, Passover Seder. Yeah, you like that. It's a big, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a popular one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And did you grow up with, um, you mentioned your four grandparents. Did you grow up with everybody close by? Like, yes, I did. Oh, I that's, sure did. that's, yeah. you're very lucky. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Very lucky. Okay. My fondest, this is probably very similar to the answer you just gave me, but my fondest, sweetest Jewish memory is uh, doing the Hora at my sister's wedding. Oh, that's so sweet. Is mm-hmm. she younger than you? She is younger than me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is she your only sister? No, I have a brother between us. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh, it was a very, very special, sweet moment to that's watch her in the very, chair. Yeah. That's very, very sweet. Something I wish I had learned about Judaism growing up is? I think more about the role of women. I think mm-hmm. I grew up in an era where we learned much more about the male, quote, characters. And I think just now, a lot of younger Jews are learning more about the role of women. Yes, beautiful. When I give charity, tzedakah, I like to give to? Uh, organizations that support children. Children, yes. Finally, I'm Lindsay Pollock, and today I am most grateful for? Oh, uh, my family, my daughter, the health of the people I love. Beautiful. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a delight and tremendously informative. Much success with the book. And I'm waiting to see much more from you in the near future. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks to Lindsay Pollock for stopping by. Her latest book again is The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace. And it's available everywhere books are being sold. I'm even more intrigued by this book after this wonderful conversation. And I meant to read it this summer, but as you may have seen on the blog, my reading kind of went down. Although I did read, you can check it out. Um, I have a blog post in which where I piled up my June, July, and August reads all in one blog post. I did manage to read part of her earlier book, which was a New York Times bestseller seller um becoming the boss this summer and i wish i 
had that when I was entering the workforce. But in any event, I will definitely be tackling the remix very soon. Ladies, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next up is a super juicy episode of Ask Yael. So many good questions, very diverse questions. I think you're really going to enjoy it. As always, thanks for being here. And if you like this episode, be sure to leave a rating so that iTunes keeps getting the message that we are a relevant show and great content for other Jewish women looking for shows on their platform. And of course, share the show with your friends on social media as well. I so appreciate you. I hope you have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the Jewish women you love. To access today's show notes, ask Yael a question, or suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, visit jewishlatinprincess.com.